Welcome to Coach House Talks. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with all of you today uh, and to share from God's Word. And I hope it blesses you and I hope it, um, as Andy was saying, helps us to, to focus on Jesus in this time and um, just enable us to see how we can help one another to live for God and to put our lives into perspective. Um, so the first question I want to, to bring to you is, are you longing for Jesus' return and for the end of the world? Now that might seem like a really big, really strange question to begin with, um, but we'll see where it goes. Revelation conjures up pictures of fire, brimstone, war in heaven, final battles, oddly described creatures, cryptic phrases, all of these complicated images. But the passage that we're gonna look at today is from 2 Peter 3, 10 to 16. And it gives us a simple but vivid picture of the end and the attitude that we should have as Christians um, while, we're still ha- while we're still alive today and while we're still living in this world in these present moments. Um, and the imagery it gives us is a bit like a volcano. Um, as a child, I loved reading through these uh, Dorling Kindersley books. They'd give you fact file, like in-depth picture fact files on all sorts of different topics. I love doing it, especially love reading the medieval ones. But one day I remember reading um, this one that was on volcanoes and obviously trying to look, as a little kid, trying to look for the biggest, biggest explosion I could find and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I came across the account of one called uh, Krakatoa. It was quite a famous eruption uh, a couple of hundred years ago. And unlike most volcanoes where it just kind of was a bit of a puff of smoke or a bit of lava here and there, it actually blew up this entire island and it just left four little specks behind it. Um, apparently you could hear the sound about 3,000 miles away. It was this enormous event um, and it's, it was the personification of this really wild, crazy, destructive force that just came out of nowhere and changed the whole landscape. Um, but the funny thing is that since that time, year by year, if you look at the map and the geography of it, new land has formed and out of this huge wreckage, actually new grounds have sprung up from the lava underground. The soil's actually really, really fertile for new growth and loads of new life has then flocked back to these islands that have been completely reshaped. And I'm mentioning this because it's a bit like the, p- the picture that Peter gives of the end times. It's this huge destructive event, but the purpose of it isn't destruction. It's so that new life and new creation can come in. And it tells us how to live in wake of this event that's coming someday at the end of time. So let's just dive into 1 Peter uh, 3.10 to 13, which tells us how to live as we await this event. Um, I'm going to be focusing on these verses. Um, There are a few more uh, from 14 to 16, which I could be covering, but I'm going to be focusing on these ones in particular. And it says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The bigger idea in this passage is something called the day of the Lord, and it crops up twice in verses 10 and 12. 
It tells us what this day will be like using words about dissolving, burning, and revealing, and hence my analogy of the volcano. Um, sandwiched right in the middle, in verse 11, um, it tells us how we should live as Christians, knowing that this day is on the way. So what is this day all about? Um, it's the time where God finally comes to put the world to rights once and for all. And there's kind of two key halves to it. The first is the destruction of the old heavens and the old earth. And secondly, there's a new, the new creation of the heavens and the earth as well. Uh, one thing to note is that Peter's description of this is specific and it's limited. Um, he summarizes the points that he wants to mention to his audience. And similarly, the day of the Lord is actually spoken about across the whole Bible. Um, it's something that Jesus talks about, the prophets talk about, um, and uh, the apostles talk about too. Um, and I say this because there's tons and tons and tons of detail that I could go into. Um, and it's described in lots of different ways. But we're going to focus on what Peter's saying here. So let's look at the destructive element of it first. Um, in verses 10, 11, and 12, Peter warns that the old earth will be destroyed. Um, it includes the elements, all things, the heavens. All things are affected by it. Um, in your Bibles, probably in the, in the NIV, it uses the word destroyed. Quite a few other versions use the word dissolved. And that might seem like a small difference, but I think dissolves gets at the, the true meaning a little bit better. Um, because everything in this event, it isn't just blown up and annihilated. It's pulled apart, it's dissolved, it's sifted through, and it shows there's a kind of sorting process going on uh, as this, in this destructive process. It shows us a reckoning of things rather than a complete destruction of them. But even so, everything changes. It's a little bit like a hardcore renovation applied to the whole earth. Um, it's a bit like pulling a house apart brick by brick um, after a fire's torn through it. There's actually a house on my street further down that unfortunately a year ago um, a fire had gone through it and uh, it hadn't completely destroyed the house but ever since there's been this enormous scaffolding on the top of it. There's been a whole huge cover over the roof um, and bit by bit they've refitted in the inside. They've had to kind of shell it out and replace everything in it. Um, so it, it isn't completely destroyed down to the foundations, but there's so much that needs to be sorted through that needs to go that was ruined by the fire. It needs to be sifted and sorted through and fixed so it's actually a good structure again. Um, and that's a little bit like uh, how Peter thinks of the old world being sort of destroyed. It needs to have the bad bits taken out of it. It needs to be sort of taken right back down to its foundations and reshaped and reformed and given a whole sort of new creation. Um, it needs stripping, renovating and rebuilding from the ground up. And the text actually gives us a little bit of an analogy slightly earlier on. Um, and that analogy is the flood. If you think of the flood uh, in Noah's time, uh, Noah and his family survive and the animals and the ark, but everything else is destroyed. And the earth isn't completely annihilated and blown up, but everything's radically changed after that time, um, and only Noah and his family survive it. The second thing to mention about this whole process is that it has a strongly moral element to it. It isn't just a kind of geological shakeup of the world. Um, we see in verse, this in verse 10 where it says, the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Eventually, in this time, all actions will be exposed for what they are. 
Good will eventually be seen as good, and evil will eventually be exposed as evil, and this involves judgment. To go back to renovation analogy, it's a bit like if you sort through your attic after 20 years. You find loads and loads of random stuff in there. You find uh, some trains that sort of half work and you can maybe put back on the track. You find some disintegrating plasterboards uh, and you find some really good tools that you'd left there a long time ago. Um, and things kind of go into different piles, but eventually either some of the things have got to go and have got to go to the tip or they've got to go back in the attic or back to where they're going to be used. It's a similar thing here. God needs to sort through what is evil in the world, what is good in the world, and it's a process of reckoning all this together. So how should we be living our lives as a result? Verse 11 tells us the answer. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be living holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The implication is that those who are not living holy and godly lives will face destruction unless they repent and change. But what makes our lives holy and godly? Because we know that we're flawed and we're sinful. The answer is only our faith in Jesus Christ, which marks us out distinctively as Christians. It's something that atheists can't do. We might describe an atheist as good or kind, but we wouldn't describe them as holy or godly. Holiness and godliness are produced specifically in relationship to God. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we should be changing to become more like Jesus. And that means that over time we're in this process where our actions, our attitudes, and our priorities are gradually shifting in Jesus' direction. Increasingly, our lives orbit around Jesus rather than us. And I think that's important to say. It's not this instantaneous uh, radical change necessarily, but our lives should be heading in a certain direction, becoming more holy and more godly over time. Begin to love the things he loves. We hate the things he hates. We bless those he curses. We pray for those who persecute us. We don't delight in evil but expose it. There's this gradual process of change here. But if we're not living holy lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, is our faith genuine? And this is what Peter is bringing us to confront. And this was the whole problem we heard a chapter or so earlier with the false teachers. They said that they were in the faith and they were Christians, but their lives were on a completely different track. They were just totally living for themselves to indulge whatever their desires were, and they weren't teaching the truth about God at all. Um, so we certainly fail and sin as Christians often, but the important thing is that we're changing with God's help, and whether quickly or, or slowly, this should be happening. It kind of presents us with a frank and genuine question, and it's, is our faith genuine or not? Are we moving towards God or away from God? And secondly, it warns us not to dice around with sin. Sin will be destroyed, as we've heard, so don't get entangled with it and become indistinct from those around you in the world who don't know Jesus. I think a final thing to say on this point is that change and repentance, the changing of our lives, is a precious gift that we shouldn't neglect. I found in my, lives, in my life times where I've got entangled in sin or caught up in um, in a way of life that wasn't glorifying God. And it was really, really difficult to come out of that change. And incidentally, with Andy talking about isolation before, the only way I, that I got out of it was with God's help, but also with many Christians around me encouraging me and telling me, oh, you're living the wrong way. That's the wrong way to go. That is, that's unacceptable. 
in your head by yourself, you can often justify things. You know how it goes. It's easy just to be like, oh, it wasn't that bad, or, you know, I did this because of this. You know, it's, you know, God will understand. It's all right. It doesn't matter. And I think when we dealt with other people around us, it's very easy just to kind of brush things under the carpet and just, you know, just forget that actually God is calling us to holy living. And the ability to change is actually something that's amazing if you think about it. As Christians, we have an opportunity that no one else in the world has, that we have the one power that can overcome any problem, any sin, anything that we're stuck in or anything habit that we're, we're caught in. Actually, with Jesus, we have the power to change it. Uh, that's an incredible gift. You might be like, you might have things in your life that you don't want to let go of, but actually, we're the only people in the world who can truly let go of our sins and let God change us for the better and for our, the flourishing of our lives and the people around us. Um, and it's not something to forget. So what do we do if we find ourselves caught in sin? I think the reality is, don't panic, but do trust in Jesus. This passage gives us an insight into the end. The end hasn't come, time hasn't finished, and all of us here are still breathing. That means we have the opportunity to ask for and receive God's forgiveness wherever we're up to. Our lives will become holy and godly with his help. This picture is something that tells us what things will be like at the end. Either our faith will be found out as counterfeit or genuine. We'll either be lost or saved. And this should wake us up to how we're living in the present day. So let's help and encourage one another to do this. So now just to move into the second section, which looks at this whole idea of new creation that Peter talks about. So far, we've seen that this coming day of the Lord warns us that we must be living lives consistent with our faith. But in verse 13, Peter clarifies we're not just morbidly looking forward to the end of the world, a bit like Jonah, a bit like Jonah did with the people of Nineveh, where he was thinking, oh, I really hope that those evil people get destroyed. And God actually rebuked him for it and said, that's not how you should be thinking about people at all. Um, so we're not just looking forward to this, you know, the world kind of blowing up. It says this in verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Because of God's presence and activity in the world, there is righteousness, but here's the key, it's not at home. It's mixed with sin and corruption, and we see it all around us, even as we're trying to live godly lives. And let's go through a few different ways that we see it. We see this battle in ourselves. The desires of the flesh are at war with the desires of the spirit. God's trying to change us, and we often resist it. We find this tension in this battle all the time. When people get together, we see this battle in the world. Human societies come and go and change around us, and there's features in some society, in society which reflect God's goodness and perhaps the change that his people have brought, but there's also forces that are pulling us in the opposite direction. There's idols, there's things that our culture worships and loves which brings us into conflict with the world around us. And then we see this battle also in the spiritual realm. Demonic forces opposed to God aid and abet our sinful desires and cultural forces towards evil. God tries to work good in this world uh, through bringing people into his kingdom to know him so that their lives can be flourishing. And the devil is trying to do the exact opposite of that. So righteousness is here, goodness is here, but it's not at home, it's at war. And we see this everywhere. And again, this passage fixes our eyes on the end result. 
like a day of judgment, a day of restoration seems idyllic and distant, but it will come. Peter shows us the end results that we can order our lives accordingly. At the end, God wins and evil loses, and that's the ultimate reality. However weighed down we feel, however sinful, however broken, we know that in the end, God wins and saves us as we trust in him. Peter gives us this opportunity to look at the end and see what actually happens there. For now, as Christians, we're a bit like foreigners in the world. And this is actually how, one, how it describes us in 1 Peter. Um, we live in it, but it's not where we belong. There's a rift between us who know God and people who don't, um, because we're living different types of lives. But one day, with the day of the Lord, this will change. We receive this new heavens, a new earth, where everything will be renewed, where there's no more evil. At that point, we will finally be at home. We shift over from foreigners to citizens. We find rest in a place we finally belong, and sin will be gone forever. We will be reunited with all of God's people, and we will have lost even the evil of death. As the Bible says elsewhere, there will be no more death, no more crying, nor pain anymore, for behold, I'm making all things new. So to come to the practical point, what might holiness and godliness look like? Now, righteousness, holiness, and godliness, they can sound like airy-fairy kind of concepts that just kind of float around somewhere up there. But verse 13 focuses on conduct, not just concepts. Our faith in Christ produces holy and godly attitudes that can just show themselves in simple ways when it comes to action. And some of these actions you may already be doing. It could be looking after a sick relative and getting their shopping. It could be cooking for someone who's just had a baby. It could be visiting someone who's just stuck alone in hospital. It could be sharing your free time with someone who's lonely. It could be minding a friend's tricky kids to help them out. It could be doing a good job at work when no one's watching you. Our faith in Jesus produces love for God and love for others. And it shows itself even in what we might think as mundane actions. But this is a powerful witness to the world around us. Think of uh, the times where someone has done these things for you. Um, and a, a particular example stands out to me in my own experience. It was actually transformative for my faith. In my first couple of years of university, in my first couple of years of university, I felt absolutely lost as a student, and I felt I wasn't really settled as a Christian. I was kind of, kind of going to church on and off, but not really engaging with it. I didn't really care about it that much. I was just kind of coasting along, pretty much by myself, actually. I hadn't really established any friends, any friendships. Happily kept myself to myself. Didn't really do that much. Um, and the biggest impact on my Christian life, both in my moral development and my understanding of who God was, was at that time, one of the church leaders invited me into his home and get, was getting to know me and letting me share in his family life. In other words, it was hospitality. It let me see how he lived life as a Christian and he didn't try and brush it up and make it look good on the outside. It let me see what living like a Christian was really like. And I'm sure there are bits that are actually really difficult for him to share. For example, him getting angry at his kids larking around, the house being a complete mess, us eating random meals that were thrown together at last minute, uh, arguments with his wife about not leaving enough petrol in the car when he came home. Uh, all these awkward problems I saw how he applied his faith to each situation and tried to resolve it. And that included times where he didn't do it well at all. But what really stood out to me 
is that it taught me so much about what it looks like to try and live as a Christian. He didn't whitewash his life, but actually just in the mundane things that he was doing, I could see how he was applying his faith. And yeah, we'd talk about the Bible as well. We'd read through the Bible. Um, but, and I think many of us, um, as people who often come to church, already know what we should and shouldn't be doing in the Bible. But I think you as people have the potential to really encourage those around you just by sharing your life. Um, if we're Christians and we have faith in Jesus, we don't necessarily need to be speaking from a platform like I am now. We don't need a particular role. But if you're putting your faith in Christ, that holiness and godliness will be visible for people to see. So we'd encourage you to let it shine and let people see your life and observe it. Uh, it's something that Paul talks about elsewhere that um, he wants people to see the way he's living, not because he's trying to show off, but because actually he knows that God's at work in him, even in the little mundane things of his life, making him holy and godly. And I want to emphasize that to you from this passage, particularly because you have something to offer. If you were a Christian, the witness of your life and the things that are going on actually can really speak to the people around you, especially to young Christians. And I think as Andy was saying before about isolation, this is a kind of thing where if we come alongside each other, we have the potential to really encourage each other. Um, and it's something that shouldn't be underestimated. Um, I'm sure um, my friend Xander, who was letting me into his house and seeing his family life and stuff, I'm pretty sure that he didn't think anything spectacular was going on. But that was a kind of holy and godly living that he was applying to his real life that really changed mine. So finally, um, how should our perspective change uh, with this day that Peter's saying about that it's going to be coming at some point which will bring about the new creation and the passing away of the old? This passage shakes us awake. Uh, evil will be destroyed. Righteousness will find a home. And Peter turns to us and says, what are you doing about it and how are you living? It wakes us up to the end results and it brings us to like the last page of the book. Let's us skip forward a few chapters. And we've seen how it should affect our conduct. So let's briefly look at how it should change our perspective. Most of the time we have our noses buried in whatever day-to-day -day problems we're facing. It's very easy to be consumed with the here and now. Life on earth and all that comes with it. We worry about stuff, money, material things, and it just becomes a case of tunnel vision. And it reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. It says, do not worry, saying, what should we eat, what should we drink, what should we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I've been personally convicted about this recently. As some of my age and my generation, it's easy to be consumed with thoughts about saving up enough money for a house or just establishing a career. These aren't bad things, but I've noticed that these thoughts fill up my head very, very quickly. I lose perspective. I end up just thinking like the rest of the world does about life. And gradually, it's easy to see priorities aligning with the world around me. So when I read this passage, what it does for me and what I think it should do for us is it, wakes, it shakes us awake and it gets us to ask the question, do we love Christ? Are we growing in faith? Are our lives distinct with holy and godly conduct? Are we sharing Christ with those uh, who don't know him? It woke me up to these questions and made me, force me to consider my priorities. And honestly speaking, it was a challenge. I was living day to day without thinking about these things. So it gives me the opportunity and us the opportunity for a reset, to come to God and say, actually, God, you know, 
here is my life, where should it be changing? Finally, uh, God saves us, and this is the starting point for godly living. This passage is very focused on our conduct as Christians, and rightly so, considering the context of 2 Peter. But as I end, I don't want to forget that we've been saved by grace, the grace of God, and this is the foundation for living a godly life. Godly living is absolutely a non-start without it. It won't happen. It can't happen. And as Ephesians 2.8 famously says, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. God has saved us and is for us as we trust him. We will endure to the end because he is helping us. Because of him and him alone, we will not be lost. And as we hear in Romans 8, 34 to 35, we see that God has put so much into supporting us and helping us and enabling us to live this life. He's forever for us so that we can live lives which are holy and godly. It says this, sorry, 8, 8, 31 to 35. What should we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is a resounding no, it can't. So since that is the case, let's trust in him to change us and transform us as we look towards this end time result where evil will be destroyed and where goodness will, will live and be at home. This is, it's true that God will be with us for the past, the present and the future. And one day we find our final rest in a new creation with all of these struggles ended. So let's look forward to that day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.